Hello and welcome to this Faber Poetry Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this special two-part programme is Christopher Reed. In part one of this podcast, recorded at Faber's offices in Bloomsbury, I spoke to Christopher about his most recent book, a farce in verse called Six Bad Poets. In this second part, we looked back at other aspects of his career, and I invited Christopher to read poems from some of his previous collections. We talked about his early association with a style of writing known as Martian for its use of surprising visual imagery, his time as a poetry editor at Faber, his translations from real poets, and his invented Eastern European poet Katerina Brack, and finally his moving sequence of poems written in memory of his late wife Lucinda, a scattering which won the Costa Book of the Year Award in 2009. But having talked about Christopher's fictional poets in part one, in particular the young man on the make, Jonathan Wilderness, I began this second part by asking about Christopher's own experience of starting out as a poet. Well, I, I had... Uh, my, my, my young character, John, Jonathan Wilderness, um, has endless self-belief and, and arrogance, and, um, and he's a bit of an operator, as you've pointed out, and I, I suppose I had something of, of that myself. Certainly, certainly um, ambition, sort of confidence, without, without, without really um, knowing how to, to, to measure the, the rightness of this confidence. I still had it. And, um, and I, I was lucky in that I had allies. My, my, my old friend, my old and great friend, Craig Rain, was um, pouncing onto the, the poetry scene just before I did, and uh, I followed him rather, and he, he helped, he gave me introductions, you know, we, we, we went around together, uh, we, we published in similar magazines, um, we both in the end published by Oxford University Press, but at the same time uh, there was a great deal of fluke and, and benign help from people who just wanted to be helpful. Um, weren't, weren't, weren't maneuvered into being helpful, but were um, spontaneously generous. And that was, I couldn't have done without the likes of Ian Hamilton and John Fuller and um, various other people. Now, I'm sure in every interview you get asked the Martian question, and I'm afraid this is not going to be an exception. Has it been more of a, a help than a hindrance when you, when you look back over your entire career, having this, this label applied to at least some of your early work? Um, it, it was a help in that it, um, it, it got me noticed and then it just became a little bit boring to have to, uh, <laughs> sorry to say, <laughs> respond to <laughs> questions about it. Uh, because although Craig and I had similar ideas, so, some similar ideas about um, what poetry was for and how to write it, and he taught me a great deal, I, 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 I freely acknowledge, we weren't identical and we've gone off in different directions. I don't think we've lost mutual admiration, but actually, we you know, our poetry is, our separate um, ways of writing poetry are nothing like at the moment. And I, I, I would say that if there was a Martian school, it's a very, very kind of botched together affair. Um, there's, there's, no, um, there's no manifesto or there's no, no program of action. I, th I think we, we, we were just um, just lucky to be noticed for our, our, our slight difference from other poets at that, at that particular time, and that difference remains. I mean, we, we write differently now ourselves, but um, that's, uh, that's um, 
generally how it goes. I suppose no poet wants to burst on the scene and write like someone else, but that sense of wanting to mark a difference seems to be particularly strong, have been particularly strong at the beginning of your career. I mean, is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, but in, in my case, and I, I, I'm certainly not going to speak for Craig here, my sense of my own difference was based on a very large degree of ignorance. I really didn't know a great deal about the poets I was trying to be different from. And in fact, uh, I now see more similarities. I mean, nobody would mistake me for Ted Hughes. Of course they wouldn't, or Seamus Heaney. No, no, nobody would say that we're kind of doing the same thing. But I can see that um, both Hughes and Heaney had a, a metaphorical richness, which was kind of greater, really, than, than, than um, was in the poems I was writing at the time. Uh, different use of metaphor. But uh, the truth is, I, 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 I didn't know Heaney's work then, and... Ted Hughes was barely known to me, so I'm ashamed to say it now, I should have known about these two great writers, but um, perhaps it was freeing, you see, perhaps it was rather liberating to not know what the competition was when you start off. I mean, I thought the group, if, if we're talking in groups, that was most dominant at the time when I was studying English at Oxford and then sort of learning how to, how to write, write poems, was the movement that was called the movement. And they, they espoused a very dry, factual, slightly augustan, unrhetorical, plain speaking kind of a, a way of writing, which I thought was deadly dull. But again, there are members of the movement, Larkin was kind of affiliated to it, whom I was certainly not characterizing that way. And I've, I've got respect and love for Larkin now. Um, so, again, uh, I was dismissing a whole bunch of writers without having properly <laughs> inspected what they were up to. I think any movement which calls itself a movement has got to at least run the risk of being charged with being somewhat dull. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Maybe I could ask you, Christopher, to read a piece from one of your, your first two collections. Oh, yeah, happily, yeah. Okay, this is, this is a fairly characteristic poem. It's called H. Vernon, and this is... Um, a description of a butcher shop. The butcher, tired of his bloody work, has made a metaphysical joke. Five pigs' heads on a marble counter leer lopsidedly out of the window and scare away the passers-by. The vision is far too heavenly. With ears like wings, these pallid putti hideous symbols of eternal beauty, relax on parsley and smirk about their newly disembodied state. A van draws up outside. The butcher opens his glass door like St. Peter as angels heave in flanks of pork that are strung with ribs like enormous harps. Do you remember the launch of your first collection? You, you were sort of saying that things, that things are different now, there are, there are readings, there are open mic nights, but do you remember what it was like when your first collection came out? I was tremendously excited, and I, I threw a party. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not certain if the... Um, I don't think OUP helped a great deal in that, um, but I just decided this was a major event and needed, needed celebration, and um, I was living in the house of... Of, of the biographer Claire Tomlin at the time, which had a marvellous big um, kitchen space in the, uh, in, the, uh, the bottom floor. 
and a crowd of people fitted in there. We all we all drank um, and, and and ate and had a very good time. Um, and I thought, hello, I'm I'm made. <laughs> then is there a feeling of and now what do I do next? Um, yes, yes, and then 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 you have to write volume two. And then volume three gets even more difficult, and, and, and so on and so forth. I've seen you quoted as saying that, you know, you, you were saying you didn't know Heaney particularly well or Hughes particularly well when you were writing your first collection, but your attention had already turned towards Europe. And so after the second collection, that provided a way to avoid painting yourself into a corner. Is that... No, is that... that no, that's exactly right. Um, after, after doing two books in the so-called Martian manner, every time I sat down to write a poem in that, in that way afterwards, I, um, I found I was just imitating myself. I was, I was um, doing nothing that surprised myself. And I think you know, the major point of writing a poem is to make a discovery for yourself, and then you know, first, and then then the reader next. And that was that was that I thought this was disastrous, and I had no idea how to, to get out of the fix. But because during my time at Oxford, I'd read a great deal of Eastern European, in particular, poetry in that wonderful series that Penguin brought out in the late 60s and early 70s called Penguin Modern European Poets. I was, um, I, had, I had that as, 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 as kind of a bigger part of my understanding of poetry than anything provided locally by other British poets. I thought, well, actually, I could write the poems of, of, one, of one of these. I know how to do it. I also know what it should sound like because I wanted it to sound like translation rather than the real thing because, after all, the poet I'd, I'd, I'd invented was living far away under political conditions that were very different from my own, writing in with a sort of history. And I decided to make her a female too, so that her experience would be different from mine. Do you know where she was living, or was she living in a sort of generalised Gen- borderland between Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary? And- Com- complete, completely generalised. And in fact, all the geographical and the local details that I pop into her poems, uh, garnered from my foreign travels all over the world. You know, there are, bit, there are bits of Japan in there, there are bits of South Africa in there, um, there are bits of the United States in there, bits of France. You know, there's, there's, you know, wherever I went, I had a notebook and I made notes which could have become Martian poems, but that wasn't happening. But they could just as easily become Katerina Brack poems. and. I mean, I suppose if some some detective were to put all these elements together, they would be very hard put to explain the geography of the country that Katerina lives in. That doesn't matter because it's a fiction. And it all somehow worked. And yeah, she came to life. I, I um, She hung around in my imagination for about a month. I wrote, I wrote the entire book, one poem after another, in the course of a month. And... Um, and, and then she vanished, and that was it. She must have been liberating in many different ways, formally and thematically and, and, and lexically. She must have just opened up a whole new world, really. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, it's an old, um, well-established proposition that, um, that, that the use of a persona or a mask or an invented voice is liberating. And... 
I found that to be be the case, and um, it 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 freed freed me up in all kinds of ways, um, as you say, lexically, linguistically, um, formally, but I suppose above all, imaginatively, that um, I was allowing myself to go beyond immediate personal experience to to, to something where I, I was an exploring stranger, and I could. Um, I could I could go places that I never knew existed before. Maybe I could ask you to read one of the the Brack poems. Yeah, of course. Um, Katerina um, Katerina Brack, my invented poet, has a, a, a story that reveals itself through the poems in the book, not sequentially, but in fragments. And uh, what it comes down to is that she's. Um, in a, in a form of internal exile, she's obviously done something to annoy the, the government of her country and they sent her off into the countryside to put her out of, out, out, out of the way. Um, but it hasn't stopped her, her writing poems. And I'm going to read just one of them, um, An Angel, which illustrates something of um, her predicament and the way she... Uh, has responded to to that predicament. An angel flew by, and the electricity dimmed. It was like a soft jolt to the whole of being. I raised my eyes from the poems that lay on the kitchen table, the work of a friend, now dead. It should not have mattered. As the light glowed again, I ought to have continued reading, but that single pause terrified me. We say of the old that they tremble on the brink. I found that I was trembling. Perhaps the black country nights encouraged superstition. I remembered the angels that had visited people I knew, not hurrying past them and merely stirring the air, but descending with the all-inclusive wingspan of enunciation to obliterate them totally. And I rose to my feet. That one brief indecision of the electric light in a night of solitude showed me how weak I was. The poems on the table lay where I had left them, not knowing they had been abandoned. Thank you. I wondered if she'd been translated back, if I can put it that way, into Polish or Czech or any Eastern European language? Yeah, she has been translated. The entire book was translated into, into Polish. That's the only uh, translation that I know about, but it, it pleased me enormously um, that, that, that it should go that way. I'm sure my um, translators, there are a couple of them, understood what they were doing, but I'm, I can't quite imagine what the Polish reader makes of it. But, but anyway, um, I'm very pleased it, it, it went ahead. Well, if you had the challenge of trying to, in some way, make the poem seem translated, I suppose the Polish translator would have had to naturalise it and make it seem like it hadn't been translated. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But then something rather vital is lost. Um, but they do say that, that uh, that's what gets lost in translation, um, poetry. You called one of your later collections, Christopher, Expanded Universes. And after you'd had your um, engagement with, with Brack, did you feel that your universe had been expanded? Yes, uh, I, I, called it, I, I called it Expanded Universes because I brought out privately for my own um, amusement a little booklet called Universes. 
it was just after I started working as the poetry editor at Faber and Faber, and um, a powerful job, um, an influential job, uh, uh, but with certain dissatisfactions built in. And one of those was that although I was char in charge of the, the content of the books, um, I could decide what get pu got published and what didn't. The way that they were presented to the world was another matter. That was in the hands of, quite rightly, of a production department and a designer, and to a certain extent the marketing department and so on and so forth. And I thought, actually, it would be much more fun if I was doing the whole thing. So I just got a bunch of my own poems together and um, did it uh, for private distribution, 300 copies, I think, I made of, 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 of this little thing called Universes. Um, and it was called Universes because there's um, a witty thing that the sculptor Alexander Calder, who invented the mobile and, and, and the stable, in other words, moving sculptures, and um, a series of them were called Universes. And he said about them that he would have liked to have somehow make sculptures that, which didn't have any dependence on gravity <laughs> at all. Uh, in other words, a total impossibility. And I just thought, yes, um, I'd like to write poems that had no gravity at all, a knowing impossibility too. Um, so I called the book, um, which just spins little ideas as lightly as they can possibly be spun. Um, and I, I thought universities was a, was a suitable title for that. And then when they, when more poems came, became expanded universities. Was it difficult to maintain your your own career as a poet while you were an editor here, or were you able to compartmentalize? Well, I, no, I wasn't able to compartmentalize, and I think I wrote less certainly during the eight, eight years I was um, in charge of the poetry list here. And I needed at the end of eight years to get away. I mean, it was the thing that Ted Hughes said to me very shortly before he died. He, he said I should get on with my own work. And then he did die. And I thought, well, there's a very serious message being presented to me. And I must take it seriously. And just two or three months later, I resigned. And, and while you were editor, do any particular collections stand out that you were especially pleased to have collaborated on? I know that's an invidious question, perhaps, but no, I'm going to ask. No, it's actually it's also an impossible question to answer because actually I just I delighted in, in the whole job, I and mean, it was it was a, a great privilege to be working with some of the poets that I'd grown to admire hugely, like Seamus and Ted and Paul Muldoon and Tom Paulin and and others, but equally. It was a delight to find new poets and start their careers for them. And you know, so I, I, I couldn't decide between the two. I mean, they, 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 they gave me different kinds of satisfaction, but, but um, I, I, I couldn't value one above the other. And when a, a manuscript comes or came in, which you'd taken on, would you spend some time with it before you reached your pencil? Do you have to let it settle in your in your mind before you start making any suggestions at all oh yeah 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 i mean certainly it would have been um, quite wrong to pounce and and uh and start um one surgical work straight straight away yes every single volume even by a poet poet one knew well and whose work was one was very familiar with and whose the development of whose work one was familiar with so that you know, the, the new volume 
whatever it might be, was in some ways um, not so strange. E- even in those cases, slow and deep familiarization was, was vitally important, yeah. And was part of your job also to encourage poets who perhaps were not quite ready yet to publish a first collection, but to advise them and make suggestions? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was certainly part of it. And I, I won't name names here, but um, there was one poet, I think I think I was shown six poems or something. I thought, well, here's something different. And over time, those six poems were added to and became became a first collection. So, so yes, that 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 was gratifying to see something like that happening. And can I ask, did you have a sort of quota of num- maximum number of poets, new poets you could take on in, in any given, given year? Or was, it, was it more elastic than that? No, I, I was given as much freedom as I wanted and I was never, I was never bought. Um, nobody ever said, I'm sorry, you've had enough. Um, I think, I, think um, I, was, I was greatly indulged, actually. And I could see, I could see the signs that life wasn't going to continue to be like that forever. Um, publishing itself was changing. The old um, trust that publishing firms had in their editors was actually waning and marketing departments and sales departments were going to have more clout than they used to. And I thought, no, I don't, don't really want to um, be living under those circumstances. I've had, I've had my fun. I'm very grateful for that. Let's go and do something else now. Do you think it's harder for a new poet starting out today than it was when you started, or is it, has it always been difficult to break through? I don't really know. I, I think there are many more poets on the scene now, vastly more. In my time, Oh, no, no, there, 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 there are many fewer, fewer presses, I think, publishing poetry. So perhaps it was, it was slightly more difficult to, 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 to break through. Now there, 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 there are both more presses and more, more younger poets, but that presents them with, a, I suppose, a, a different kind of difficulty, which is when there's a crowd, it's, um, it's difficult to stand out. And those aids to recognition, like um, reviews in national newspapers, there are probably fewer of them than there used to be when I, I started out, so there's no help there. So I suspect that although there's a multiplicity, it's a kind of rather lonely multiplicity, and, um, and people are struggling to, 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 to get attention. And if there are more poets and more poems, is nonetheless the number of good poems more or less a, a constant? Well, I don't know. I think I think another reason that I ceased to be a publisher. I mean, there are many reasons, but one of them was that um, I thought, well, I've, I I I understand this this slightly younger generation and their work. Am I going to understand the next lot? And am I going to make confident judgments about it? And I thought probably I'd, I'd be on less secure ground then. So now I just read a great deal of what's written by people 20 and 30 years younger than me without necessarily coming to a judgment. I've, <laughs> I just relish the difference and I'm, I'm much, more, uh, much happier to, to be able to say, well, 
I didn't quite get that, but it doesn't matter because I'm not here deciding whether this person gets published or not. Somebody else has taken on that decision. Good luck to them. I wanted to ask you about the place of translations or, or versions in your work because there are quite a number of those in the selected poems from Homer to Mallarmé to, to Lee Poe. Is that another form of sort of replenishment or trying out different things from, from your own voices? Yeah, exactly so. In, in taking on, say, Mallarmé, I'm borrowing something of what I understand his voice to be. I and mean, he's a notoriously difficult um, French poet to understand. And part of the pleasure of attempting a translation of his, I've done, I've done two in my life, that's probably as far as I'll go. Uh, I've been conscious all the time that the act of translating was also an effort to understand. And I'm very far from confident that my versions of Mallarmé represent uh, what, what he meant but in, in they're what I could extract from him. So yes, I'm 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 taking something that somebody else has done, and and and, and I've seen how I could use it to to re- replenish my you know stock of experience. Yeah, I wonder if translating Mallarmé is a bit like doing crossword puzzles. Some of the, some of them you, you only get three or four clues, and you you have to abandon and think I'll come back to. It. And others you get a little bit further, but you you got all the way with them. Well, I, I, in in each case, um, it was uh, only a, a sonnet, and and, and he, he writes very little sonnets too because the lines are short. Yes, I think that's a very nice analogy. It is quite like doing a crossword puzzle, and if you can get um, a a line 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 three and line nine more or less to your liking, uh, that might help line seven somehow, if it can fit the two, um, you know, to come to life too. I wondered if I could get you to read the, the Li Po version you did, because that's a nice little vignette, I thought, of, of the publishing world, and some, some something up that certainly I've been familiar with in, in just a, you know, half a dozen lines or so. Yeah, yeah, very happily. Um, of course, I don't, I don't read Chinese, and, and um, I can't remember whose translation I went to for the English version of this. But this is my English version of an English version of an ancient Chinese poem. Such a good lunch. Suddenly, it's evening. Stains on the tablecloth. I totter outside. Where have the pigeons gone? Where are the taxis? Thank you. I think anyone who's been involved in publishing at all will recognise some of that. <laughs> Mr. Mouth. Where did, where did Mr. Mouth come from? Ah, m- m- Mr. Mouth, very like Six Bad Poets, was a title before he became a, um, a book of poems. I, I, I just, in my notebook, I just wrote down the phrase, Mr. Mouth, not knowing quite why I'd done it, but sensing that there was some potential there for, for use, maybe just in a poem. I don't know, I had no, no, no very clear idea, but it, it caught my fancy and it seemed to have a degree of promise in it. And then it lay around for two or three years and um, then I started writing the book when I was in the middle of editing a volume of Ted Hughes's letters as a kind of distraction from the world of, of Ted Hughes and, and, and 
the heavy presence of his imagination, uh, heavy exposure to his imagination that I was getting from from, from the letters I was reading and, 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 and selecting. Of course, actually, I didn't get that far from Ted Hughes because as somebody pointed out when the book came out, its nearest relation in, in, in the world of poetry is, is, is Ted Hughes's Crow, um, a kind of comic book sequence of, um, of poems about a single character who goes through all kinds of escapades and, 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 and mishaps. Um, and transmutations. And transmutations, indeed, that's right, exactly. And uh, the difference between Mr. Mouth and Crow is the difference between me and Ted Hughes. Uh, Crow is a great tragic figure um, who lives in disaster and barely survives it. My Mr. Mouth is a comic figure who stumbles through a world of kind of minor blunders and unfortunate encounters which are of no great consequence and has a quick word for every situation and is pretty glib basically but it's the, the comedy of it that, um, that, that, that got me going um, and the idea of doing a, something a bit like a comic strip, comic strips being endlessly renewable I, I, I particularly had in mind there's, a, there's an American comic strip of the 1930s, I think, 20s or 30s, called Crazy Cat, which I'm, I'm greatly in love with. And Crazy Cat has very, very few... <laughs> the, the, the elements of the comic strip are, are very simple. There's a cat and a mouse and a dog. And the, um, the mouse is in love with the cat, and the cat's having nothing of it. And the mouse tries to attract the attention of the cat each time by throwing a brick at his head. And there's a dog called, um, who's, who's a policeman who tries to keep order and fails to. And George Merriman, who I think is a genius, used that format over years and years of comic strip drawing and writing. And, and, <laughs> and I loved it. And I, 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 I couldn't keep Mr. Mouth going for years and years. When I got to um, poem 111, I thought that's a very good number at which to stop. Well, maybe we could have one of the 111 just introduce listeners to, to Mr. Mouth in action. Yeah, the, this one's called um, The Hole in Victorian Literature. That's hole with, without a W at the beginning of it. Um, in, in this poem, uh, he takes many, many shapes and forms, Mr. Mouth, but in this one, he's Professor Mouth. He suddenly become a a lecturing uh, literary professor, literature professor. The rabbit hole down which Alice fell is a classic symbol, begins Professor Mouth. The lecture hall is hushed as a bell, waiting to be told. So he continues, but not sexual, stunning them all with this dismissal of a Freudian commonplace. They are utterly baffled. What other hole could Lewis Carroll have had in mind? A pause, then oral, he adds with a smile, as if he had pulled a live rabbit from a top hat. Well, 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 another old fool with his whimsical drivel, as they might have guessed. There's the clatter dance of a pencil, general shuffle, and someone tries to stifle an expanding yawn. Thank you. 
That made me think of Derek Dufton in Six Bad Poets, who allegedly causes depression in one of his second years because his lectures are so boring. And that was a, a, a nice little, um, little skewering of, of something in academia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, 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 after leaving Faber's, some, some years after, I, I had a, a job in, in the academic world for two years, and that's provided quite a lot of uh, material for other poems. There's a long poem, Professor Winterthorne's Journey in Nonsense, which uh, is all about an academic. Christopher, I wanted to ask you about a scattering. Mm. I know it's a collection you've, you've spoken about many times before, the one which, which won the Costa and in which you write about your, your wife's last illness and death. At what point did you know that you were going to write a collection about, about those events? Well, I, I really knew when Lucinda, my wife, was, was dying. She was given by her, her, her medical experts a year to live. She was told that um, it would be unlikely that she'd survive more than a year, and which is more or less how it turned out. Um, so during those, um, those months, I realized I, I, I had a job to do, which was, first of all, to make it clear to her that um, I was unhappy and I knew too that the, um, the job would extend beyond her death and that I would have to have to write a, a monument to her. The book's in four sections and the first section I was able to write during a holiday in Crete which we both went on, her last um, holiday with me and while she was looking for wild flowers I, um, I, I sat around writing writing poems for her to read, purely for her. Though I also, as I've just said, had the, had the sense that this would be part of a larger structure. And that I was able to present to her and she was moved by them. And some months later she died. And I had to wait for quite a while, um, six months at the very least, before I could even think of the next step but then I did write the next step which was all about her last month in the hospice where she actually did die very clearly remembered so it wasn't difficult to to, to collect the material nor in a, in a perhaps surprising way was it difficult to address the subject matter because I just knew that that was my as my task I, I couldn't avoid it it had to be done out of respect for her and uh, to give a picture of the very, very brave way in which she, she faced uh, her, her extinction. Then time passed again and I was able to write the other poems later and, and bit by bit a, a book was made. Were there times where it just seemed impossible, where you thought, I, I just cannot push this through to the end, or did you always know somewhere that you would get there? Yes, I knew. I, 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 I knew because of my sense of duty, but also I knew that I was up to the task. Um, in some ways, the most difficult thing was writing the final section where I had to recapture or find, perhaps it wasn't so much a case of recapturing, but of finding a voice in which I could begin to address her again. The very first part of the book, the first quarter of the book, had been largely uh, addressed to her. Sections two and three hadn't. But I thought I can only round this off by talking to her again. 
and finding the the, the the right register for that was 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 quite quite difficult but I knew that if I was patient I would find it and and, and eventually I I hit the note I needed and that achieved uh, the entire section came very quickly could I ask you perhaps to conclude by reading the title poem from a scattering a scattering I expect you've seen the footage elephants finding the bones of one of their own kind dropped by the wayside picked clean by scavengers and the Sun then untidily left there decide to do something about it but what exactly they can't of course reassemble the old elephant magnificence they can't even make a tidier heap but they can hook up bones with their trunks and chuck them this way and that way so they do and their scattering has an air of deliberate ritual ancient and necessary their great size too makes them the very embodiment of grief while the play of their trunks lends sprezzatura elephants puzzling out the anagram of their own anatomy elephants at their abstracted lamentations may their spirit guide me as I place my own sad thoughts in new hopeful arrangements I was talking to Christopher Reed whose latest book six bad poets is out now in hardback for more information about it and all of Christopher's books visit faber.co.uk you can make sure you never miss the Faber podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes it's free quick and easy go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away the full Faber podcast archive is also available on SoundCloud just type Faber Books SoundCloud in your search engine and you'll be taken straight to it until next time Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.